Hello and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and for this fourth season, I'll be interviewing leaders, forward thinkers, and entrepreneurs from around the world to explore the opportunities, challenges, and rewards of working in clean tech, and more specifically within hydrogen. We'll be hearing from individuals with very different focuses within hydrogen, but with one clear goal of how we can fuel a cleaner, greener future. In addition, they'll be offering you some tokens of wisdom to enlighten, engage, and inspire everyone to live their purpose every single day. So today's guest has a huge commitment to the energy transition as its entirety. He has had a wonderfully varied career, and not only is he Hydrogen Podcast royalty, he is also the CEO of Proteum Green Solutions. Chris Jackson, welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. How does it feel being on the other side? Um, it's still strange. Um, I think I prefer being on your side, but uh, I'm, I'm adjusting to it more, I think, he says. Not sure. We'll find out at the end of this conversation. I'll be kind, I promise. Okay, well, thank you. Well, let's kick it off with a bit of a controversial topic. Um, so speaking of the energy transition in its entirety, um, we've had a chat a bit before about the current narrative on the energy transition, which there seems to be two very definite camps. Um, so if you want to give us a bit of an insight into who you are, how that fits with Proteum, and then where that sits within the energy transition. I think that would be a pretty good start. Gosh, right. Okay. Small topic. Glad we're going straight in. Um, sure. So a little bit on me. Um, so good to speak to all of your listeners here. My name is Christopher Jackson, CEO and founder of Proteum. Um, we'll probably talk a bit about Proteum later. So um, for now, I'll focus a bit on me. In addition to founding Proteum, um, I previously chaired the UK Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association until I stepped down in July 21, um, partly to do with the government's strategy on blue hydrogen. I continue to be the vice chair of Renewable UK's Green Hydrogen Group and sit on various Bay's advisory boards. And as Jenny has kindly mentioned, uh, I am the uh, co-host and founder of, or co-founder, I should say, of the Everything About Hydrogen podcast, which is uh, the oldest pure play hydrogen podcast uh, in the world. Um, Prior to all of this, though, um, I had a bit more of an unusual background and an esoteric one, I think, is the polite way of putting it. So uh, for my sins, and I do apologize, they are sins, I started life as an energy and marine insurance broker, um, although I was actually weirdly working on software implementation around business development. So how do you get people whose new business sheet is a single page of A4 with, uh, in one case, a monkey at the top, which represented 2 million of new income as their new business sheet? And how do you move that for a business where it was turning over, I think, 50 million of revenue each year and 50% was new business? And the team had no idea where it was coming from, except for these A4 pieces of paper. How do you take that and digitize it? And so you have to learn how people do business development and energy and shipping. And that was my first job. Um, so move from that, work for the deputy CEO in global strategy for a company called Jardine Lloyd Thompson, um, and then progress from that into venture capital, working a little bit with the old man. So my old man's one of the oldest venture capital um, players in the city with a group called Elder Street BCT. They back Sage Group from a 
million revenue to a two billion revenue business, um, and then moved from that, um, or tried, I should say, desperately to move from that, and uh, found out no one wanted to hire me. So I did what most people do, and I enrolled for a degree. So I went to um, a fantastic university that I can't speak highly enough of called Seuss Johns Hopkins. Uh, two-year master's in energy, economics, finance, and German, with a year in Bologna, Italy, and a year in DC. Spent some time with the Asian Development Bank, a South African tech corporate finance firm, and a oil and gas asset manager in Calgary. Before finishing my degree, um, after 115 job interviews, I had two offers. One was a, a role with a company called Temporis Developments in the UK, where I was trying to support EV charging development. Um, and working with people like Ian Johnston, who's now CEO of Osprey, people like Mark Henderson, CIO of GridServe, and people like Harry Bond, who's the founder of a boutique investment bank called Longspur. Um, but then eventually went to the World Bank. And at the World Bank, I originally worked on SG7, and what the World Bank held the pen and did the reporting for um, Sustainable Development Goal 7. And specifically, I was writing the Renewable Energy Chapter with the World Bank for the IEA and for the UN. Um, and I think that was where the hydrogen bug in some ways kind of picked up. I'd written a paper at university with my professor on it. But um, when you realize how much of the decarbonization story, 80% is transport and heat, you realize that actually power, as great as it is, is actually a very small part of the story. And we haven't focused enough on how do we decarbonize those two critical elements of the energy system. Uh, and that took me then into advisory. So I did some advisory work for the Saudi and uh, UAE governments on energy strategy. How do we get them to switch to uh, green solutions, uh, specifically solar and wind? But we were trying to push hydrogen as well. Um, and I kept getting pulled into things like battery electric, floating solar, concentrated solar power. And the theme kept coming back storage, decarbonization of heat, decarbonization of transport. And that's where I had some good supporters in the bank who let me uh, run around and start calling all these CEOs of these hydrogen and fuel cell companies who wondered why this strange person from DC from the World Bank was calling them and uh, ended up getting the World Bank's first internal funding for green hydrogen in over a decade and basically built out their green hydrogen um, work practice. Um, also ended up advising the IFC colleagues who at the time were just getting up to speed with this and then um, co-authored the World Bank's first ever paper, Green Hydrogen in Emerging Markets, um, and then left that and came to the UK and launched Proteum. I mean, that's a background. <laughs> it's not planned, as you can tell. <laughs> the best backgrounds aren't planned, but I think it brings us really nicely to that point of founding Proteum. And I think something that really differentiates you as a founder is your background. Um, a huge number of the founders, particularly in this space, come from an engineering background. They followed a similar path. They've done a similar thing in a larger corporate and then decide to go it alone. Whereas you've really come at it from a different angle and obviously proved your worth in hydrogen in the World Bank. But you know, what was it that was that really kind of last driving factor that made you think, I am going to I'm going to start Proteum and it is going to be exactly what it is now. So as I said, I, I actually wrote my first paper on hygiene in 2015. And actually at the time, um, you know, in a way that would have shocked people, ITM had the full numbers on their system. So you could see all the efficiency, the CapEx price, the OPEX and everything. And you could actually take that from the website. And people in the UK were talking about the fact that 100 million pounds a year was being cut, of power was being curtailed, basically. And so there was, even then, this big conversation around how do you use all of this excess solar and wind and how can you decarbonize heat and transport? So, 
you know, the seed of hydrogen kind of had started there. And my professor, Marco Dell'Aquila, who ended up becoming my chief investment officer and partner in Proteum, you know, was the one who pointed out he had not seen anyone write on hydrogen. And we stayed as friends and he stayed as a mentor. And as I went through this sort of fairly esoteric series of steps, including the World Bank, um, I started having conversations with a number of his other students. And by the way, Marco sits in this weird spider's web where he seems to be tied to a lot of different hydrogen royalties. So my two co-hosts, Andrew Leadham, um, legal counsel at Biotech, and Patrick Malloy, uh, manager at the Rocky Mountain Institute's uh, breakthrough uh, side for deep decarbonization. Both of them are former students of Marco. You know, there are several other people across the hydrogen ecosystem, including Marcus Wiltoner, one of the hydrogen leads for McKinsey and the Hydrogen Council, who is also one of his students, you know, and they pop up. Um, Hans Koenig, Aurora Energy lead for Germany, also one of Marco's students. So they, they, they come up a lot and chatting to Patrick, who's a good friend of mine in pubs in DC, we just kept bouncing around these same issues of how do you integrate solar and wind? How do you decarbonize these hard to abate sectors? How do you switch a, a non dispatchable electron into a fuel that can be multi-vector in use, stored over long periods of time. And I think what we realized, and this is probably where Proteum started to come together reasonably fast, the technologies to get to net zero are here today. 80, 90% of the way to net zero technologies already exist. The issue is around commercialization and business models. And I'm not an engineer, you're right. But what I think I am good at and what one of my skills I think was, was the ability to pull together very bright, capable people, which I've been really fortunate at Proteum to pull together an incredibly capable team and to see how do you stitch different pieces together of, of the puzzle to create a business model. And that's really about people, understanding people's needs, understanding their concerns, understanding where they see value, and trying to align with those and build a proposition that caters to that. Um, and probably the final push was, frankly, I came back to, DC, uh, to London from DC in July 19, went and spoke to a bunch of people and said, this is what I want to do. Is this crazy? And I think Marco's words were something along the lines of, don't be a wimp and be a consultant, go and build something like a proper business. And that was where I said, fine, are you going to come and take the leap with me? And he sort of realized he'd shot himself in the foot and, uh, and joined me. Uh, but it's nice. And I think when, you know, talking about his network there, when you know you've got the support of somebody who has fingers in a lot of pies, then you know you're getting a lot of wisdom that's coming with that partner. So... Yeah. And, you know, we're fortunate. I mean, we've got, you know, one of our team is a guy called Peter Ram. Peter Ram has worked in the energy sector for over 30 years. He's built over seven gigawatts of combined cycle gas turbines across Europe and North America, 100 megawatt plus solar and wind projects in North America, you know, extremely experienced guy. You know, we've had people like Jen Baxter, who were part of the Proteum team, you know, who was the chief engineer at IMA Key. We've got people like Sir John Rose on the advisory board, who's the former Rolls-Royce CEO. Um, you know, I mentioned Mark Henderson before, people like David Scott, founder of Tribe, one of the first ESG asset managers in the UK, leader in the space, um, you know, and, 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 you know, I can't emphasize how important in an ecosystem, especially a growing nascent ecosystem, having really good people around you is, and that's something that I benefited from massively. And being open to realizing from the get-go that no matter how smart you are, there are people who are smarter. And the key is how do you make sure that you listen, but also form your own view? Because people have more experience, but that doesn't mean that they're right, especially in a new market. And that, I think, is something that um, hopefully we're, I don't get right all the time, but um, getting right more often than not. 
Yeah, and I think that brings us kind of back to something I said at the start around the narrative around the energy transition. And there's a lot of very intelligent people that are basing the narrative around the energy transition on some very cold, hard facts and, and actually not looking at the people element. So sort of combining those things there where you're talking about the people uh, and the problem, um, how does Proteum kind of align itself to the more people people-focused narrative on the energy transition? Sure. Um, so uh, there's a few different ways of coming at this, and I've been wondering the best way to put it. I think what's important to remember is we're talking about an energy system. And a system is not just an engineering thing. It's a system of people and relationships, and it's how people interact together. You know, And one of the things that um, I, I particularly love, so I'm, I'm a big fan of behavioral economics. And one of the things that I love about behavioral economics, and if you read about Richard Thaler, who founded it, was that you know he came into a space where everyone said, well, we have to assume that people are rational. And if we assume people are rational and they behave this way, then this is how the system should look. And that was where all the models were derived from. And that's what everyone forecast based on. And of course, well, what happened? Well, predictably, massive things blew up, went wrong, and everyone went, oh my God, why didn't we see that? Why didn't we understand that? And Tala's big innovation was to say, because you're forgetting people. People don't behave rationally, or at least they don't follow a rationality in the same way that you are treating it within the model. And if you don't understand motivations of people and how people think about priorities, values, resources, you can't possibly start to build systems and you can't possibly think about changing systems. And I think we need that same sense of revolution within the way we think about energy. There are a lot of people who are, and I think unfortunately are slightly older in the sector, who come from the old power generation sector predominantly, which was always around a very specific component of system efficiency, which is thermodynamic efficiency. You know, if you work on a gas power plant or a coal-fired power plant, everything is that extra 1% of efficiency. Every 1% or 2% of thermodynamic efficiency, that is critical. And that mindset pervades through that the only thing that matters is thermodynamic efficiency. But the minute you look at the real world, you realize that no one is making energy-based decisions on thermodynamic efficiency. You know, The most obvious one is that battery electric vehicles, one of the most popular models are the SUVs. There's nothing thermodynamically efficient about an SUV. So why are people buying them? Well, they're buying them because there's a value proposition. They like being able to take the dogs and the boot of the car. They like the space for packing. They like, you know, you know, being comfortable over longer distances. And and most people didn't buy battery electric vehicles or the Tesla Roadster because they were cheap or because they were reliable or because they were super efficient. They bought them because they were a unique driving experience. They were a status symbol and because they wanted to be part of something in the future. And that mindset shift is something that I think the industry needs to move towards. We need to move towards an understanding of what is the value of energy and how do we talk about the value of new technologies as opposed to simply looking at things at a commodity cost level. And that means not just talking about thermodynamic efficiency, but talking about system level efficiencies, right? What is the most operationally efficient way to use vehicles for a fleet operator does not necessarily mean the same thing as being the most thermodynamically efficient. What is the most resource efficient thing to do across an energy system is not necessarily the most, you know, it's not the same as thermodynamic efficiency, right? 
I mean, the stupid example I've used to give to someone was, you know, if you think about a knife, if you said, I've got the rarest piece of sushi in the world and I need to cut it perfectly, you'd go, well, I want the sharpest knife in the world so that I don't lose any of that sushi. But, you know, would you really get a diamond knife to get the most efficient cut with the most wastage? Of course you wouldn't. It's ludicrous. But that's because you're saying, you know, implicitly, we understand diamonds are valuable. That resource is valuable. You know, there is a trade between efficiency and the value of resource. But that's not the conversation we seem to be having in the energy sector. And it's very parochial. And I think that is a problem. And so part of what Proteum is trying to do, and part of what you know really motivated us is to go, let's stop having these quite insular conversations purely driven around one component of efficiency, which is thermodynamic. Let's have a much broader conversation around what is efficient for the way that people use energy today, i.e. their processes and the way that they run their own energy systems. What makes sense from a resource perspective? How do we balance between different mineral needs across different segments? Because lithium-ion we also need for phones and we need for data centers and we need for all sorts of things not just cars and energy storage you know what is efficient for integration you know we can't simply you know assume that you it's the most efficient thing to build massive transmission lines across oceans it's not always the most efficient way of using resources so let's have that conversation and we need to think about people 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 you know there were the chairman i think or the ceo of national grid in the uk a few weeks ago said you know to meet the sort of scale up we're talking about in terms of electrification would require the uk to build seven times more grid in the next seven years than we built in the last 37 years right orders of quantum or put a different way the scott wind offshore wind allocation was a 27 gigawatt bid right 27 gigawatts of potential capacity to come online total interconnection between england and scotland is seven gigawatts and that's maxed at chunks during the year and those scotwind projects are supposed to be connecting to the grid by 2030 there is a reason why every offshore wind developer in the world is looking at hydrogen and it's because they're looking at broader system level benefits and that's the conversation we need to have and Proteum does that by starting with the most important person in all of this, which is people, and in our case, customers. So Proteum's model is to go after businesses that have a clear commitment to zero carbon and decarbonization. We work with the customers to understand what their energy requirements are, where are they using power, where are they using heat, where are they using transport, You know, what components do they own, what components do they use through a third party, what is their timeline for scope one, two, three emissions? And crucially, how does their site work? Because this is the other thing. You know, you can't always electrify a site. There might not be grid, there might not be space. So what else can you do? And the site, you know, site operations, disrupting site operations can be fatal for an SME if it's their major site. So how do you enable them to transition without threatening their ability to operate? We do that piece of work which you know, some people call advisory, but actually for us, it's actually part of building infrastructure. We then develop, build, own, and operate green hydrogen and co-located renewable infrastructure for those customers to decarbonize those different elements. And that allows us to provide multiple net zero energy solutions enabled by green hydrogen and green electrons to that business without them taking technology risk or financial risk on their balance sheet. And as we build with multiple customers, the way that we view this and envisage this is that we're replicating the way that the old power system was built, the old gas grid system was built, and old water system was built, which, again, people are not looking at history when they're talking about gigawatt scale projects. History tells us that 
systems are built by finding an anchor customer with a need, building infrastructure for that customer, incrementally adding demand from that initial setup of infrastructure so that that anchor project becomes a multi-offtake hub. And as you build multiple projects across a region, you suddenly see these hubs starting to connect into local networks, regional networks, and the grid. And anyone who reads history has seen this before. It's tried and tested. And only through this approach, we believe, will we as a society be able to actually decarbonize at the pace that we need to. And maybe this is the final thing I'll say. This is the fastest economic and energy sector transition in known economic history. We have 27 years to perform something that has never been done before. It took 120 years for electricity to go from 0% of global energy to 20%. And we're going to have to decarbonize from arguably contested numbers, 20% of global energy being renewable to 60-70%. And we have less than 30 years to do it. We can only do that when we actually learn from the lessons of the past and when we actually talk to customers and end users and we build products for them. If we're not talking to them and building for them, we are having the wrong conversations. And speaking of customers, I think it's really helpful for our listeners to hear a real world example. Um, And actually, when I was listening to your podcast, uh, I heard you talking through the Budweiser example. And I think it's, um, first of all, it's an area people probably wouldn't think of when they're thinking of the energy transition, but a, a huge possible area of making a massive impact but can you give uh, a quick rundown on what that looked like and why that aligned and why their commitment to decarbonization meant that this was possible sure absolutely so um thank you for teaming up so proteum is working with budweiser uk and ireland to decarbonize um, their brewery in Magor, South Wales. The Magor Brewery is the UK's largest brewery. It produces just over a billion pints of beer a year, which for people who don't know what pints are, it's a lot of beer. Um, it's roughly 8 million people's worth of beer a year, to give you some frame of reference. Um, it's a really interesting um, project for several reasons. And I want to start a little bit with the customer. So, you know, Budweiser is one of the largest multinational corporates in the world. You know, an enormous balance sheet has raised the largest ever green bond in history, over $8 billion, you know, significant cash flows from operations um, and a very clear sustainability set of objectives and goals. And indeed has set itself a target to be net um, zero emissions from its breweries in the UK, all breweries in the UK by 2026. So really ambitious um, and very client driven and very brand driven, right? Their consumers are people who want to buy beer as part of a lifestyle or various other carbonated beverages. And so being part of that lifestyle that people want and part of that brand is really important for them. You know, people would say, well, why don't they do all of this themselves? Budweiser has 255 breweries globally to decarbonize. It is a massive undertaking that these corporates do. And I think it's hard for people to understand how much they are already doing and how much they, they work on, but they still need partners to come and support them. You know, that they signed a uh, 100 megawatt solar PPA with LightSource many years ago, largest corporate PPA in the UK history at that time. And that galvanized a lot of the market. Budweiser has used fuel cell vehicles in China, in the US, in Europe, and we're hoping to get them to use them in the UK as well. And again, that makes them the most diversified user of hydrogen vehicles in the world for mobility applications for industry. So 
all of this comes together brilliantly in the Meagor project, where we're looking to build solar and wind near to the brewery, over 20 megawatts of renewables located um, near the brewery. We will be connecting those renewables to a hydrogen production facility adjacent to the brewery. Uh, we will be using a PEM electrolysis solution provided by Siemens Energy that will be helping us to then uh, provide three different products to the brewery. We will be decarbonizing some of their bottling on site using electricity and supporting other solutions to electrify certain components of, of heat or efficiency at the brewery. We will be using hydrogen for the boilers to complement other forms of net zero energy that they want to bring in on the brewery site. And we will be using hydrogen for heavy good vehicles that they operate from the brewery along the M4 and along other routes and decarbonizing the forklifts as well that operate on the site. So working in tandem with Budweiser, uh, this is uh, the largest green hydrogen integrated project in South Wales that is currently going through the development of national significance process in South Wales with the Welsh government. And we think it's a really good flagship story of how industries can work together to bring these technologies from well-established partners into a commercial structure that enables a company to meet its net zero goals, that enables um, the area to benefit from local jobs and, you know, some really quite tangible benefits for things like, you know, you've got 44 ton heavy good vehicle diesel trucks running day and night for operations. If you can replace them with, you know, quiet zero emission fuel cell electric solutions, and actually you can also be filtering out some of the NOx and other pollutants using the air filters on the vehicles, that is a fantastic story. And by having hydrogen for mobility, we also allow people like Monmouthshire Council that is looking at fuel cell electric alongside battery electric to decarbonize its fleet, but can't justify that initial investment. We're helping to find ways that other potential users in that community can benefit. And again, it's a way of how Budweiser's actions enable and support a broader ecosystem to come together and how businesses like Proteum are helping them and helping the ecosystem to evolve. Um, a final piece, if I may, that I think is quite unique because it comes back to something before, the solar and the wind is going to be behind the meter. And I think this is important because what people forget is not that we shouldn't have solar and wind on the grid. We should. It's really important. But as anyone who does development will tell you, as opposed to anyone who writes consulting reports, getting on the grid is really hard. There are a lot of challenges with the grid right now. Um, and actually, what we need to do is recognize that where we have solar and wind that can be built and that can be delivering immediate tangible decarbonization benefits today and over the next five to 10 years, the priority should be on how do we build and find ways to integrate that into the system, even where there are limitations of getting it onto the power grid. And I think green hydrogen here plays an enormous role in enabling and unlocking that. And I think that we need to be more open and cognizant of that value. I mean, it's a fantastic story, but I think one that actually brings it home to people of how many moving parts that you actually manage. Um, and for those people that didn't know about protein before, I think that's, that, that shows that there needs to be more focus on the absolute entirety rather than companies just looking at one piece or another. And something that you also touched on there was the development of green hydrogen at the same time as wind and solar. And I think most people in this sector would know that the timelines on those look really quite different. Um, and often those things happen from different organizations who then struggle to balance the timeline. So that you, the fact that you're doing that overarching piece means that I'm assuming 
it makes it slightly easier to manage what the timelines look like um, and make it all join together. It's, it's a great point. I mean, timeline is an issue for projects all over. Um, but as I alluded to, one of the biggest timeline issues is grid. And actually, you know, the planning and permitting in some cases can be done reasonably quickly. It's about actually getting access to the grid that is one of the barriers to getting some of these projects into into the market. So I think we can help on aspects of the timeline. Um, but you are right to point out something that is quite unique about us is that we actually do the full value chain. So we do the upstream solar and wind. We do what I guess would be conventionally called the midstream, which is the production of hydrogen using those renewables. And then we also enable parts of the downstream. So we'll work with customers to identify boiler, burner, you know, or other forms of direct heat applications using hydrogen, direct and indirect application. And we work with vehicle OEMs to be able to build out networks so that we can do refueling. Now, Proteum doesn't intend to operate a large network of hydrogen refueling stations. There are some fantastic businesses that are building that within the ecosystem. But from our perspective, you need projects like ours that are able to be almost standalone in the first phase to be able to get to a critical mass where hydrogen is being produced reliably for a very tangible customer at a competitive cost of capital that starts to drive down cost making the whole structure more affordable and giving you that anchor base. And then you can use those you know, assets, if you like, as you build them over time to enable that broader ecosystem to flourish. And I think projects like ours in Teesside, which um, we have a project in Teesside that we're going through the planning process on is a 68 megawatt green hydrogen facility. So should be the largest permitted green hydrogen site in Teesside um, next year, early next year. Those sorts of projects are great for that because there are multiple businesses in that area. And what we're trying to do is enable different businesses to trial and test hydrogen and understand its value. And maybe that's a final thing I haven't touched on a little bit here, which is I've alluded to it, value. We do need companies and we need governments and investors to think a little bit more around this value piece. I talked about at the very beginning of the show, why don't people all buy really small dinky battery electric vehicles? Why do they go out and buy a Tesla Model X or why do they go and buy, you know, an Audi, you know, e-tron? Apart from, you know, they are brilliant cars. Why are they brilliant? Well, it's because people derive other benefits from them. So there are benefits to using battery electric that people enjoy, which is things like system resiliency, or it's to do with the driver experience. And some early studies suggest driver retention from using electric vehicles is higher for buses and HGVs. Well, a lot of those value benefits also accrue to hydrogen-based applications as well. How do you quantify them and how do you get people to recognize the value? It's really important. We're fortunate that we've got some really good customers that do get that. But I think that is a really important part of how we see the system evolving. And how do you build flexibility in the system? Um, you know, Flexibility in energy storage, security of supply are things that we've all talked about, but only really in the last 18 months with the war in Ukraine, You know, not just because of the knock-on on gas supplies, but actually watching 40% of Ukraine's power infrastructure being knocked out in the space of two weeks has made a lot of people realize that, again, what might make thermodynamic efficiency sense is actually bad for a system level approach where you need to think about resiliency and you need to think about redundancy. You know, you can buy multi-fuel boilers on the market today that can run on hydrogen, can run on natural gas, can run on HVO, can run on biomethane. That gives you a lot of system level flexibility. You can't switch an electric boiler 
to run on other fuel. If the grid is down, the grid is down. And so what you need to think about is combinations of those technologies. How might you use a heat pump with a hydrogen multi-fuel boiler or an electric boiler with a with a hydrogen? And how do you tie those things together? This shouldn't be a binary conversation. This should be about finding solutions that make technical sense for end customers. And if we pillarize and you know, frankly, shout at people for doing things that make technological sense for them. I don't know how people can say that they are actually committed to net zero or that actually that they really have any sense of what the energy transition requires. And I think actually something that you mentioned when we were speaking ahead of this podcast brings together a whole bunch of those points, the the one actually being that it probably wasn't the best for net zero, but um, looking at human behavior looking at value versus price and looking at history was where you we discussed the the horse and cart to the car it it wasn't cheaper it it actually in hindsight wasn't better for the world but people's deciding factors certainly didn't come to come down to thermodynamics um they certainly came down to value or perceived value well, the one I always love is power, right? So the early power system itself is actually a great case study in this. So um, I'm a history nerd. So if you read a little bit about um, the first ever power grid that Edison set up in New York, um, it was small, right? Let's let's remember this, my point that it often starts small and it was distributed. I think around 110 homes were on the original system. Um, it had a shocking safety rate. Um, I think people, you know, who studied a lot of history would realize two to three electrical engineers were dying daily in New York when the first grid was going up because they were getting electrocuted. Um, you know, so it certainly wasn't safe. It was not especially reliable. Um, you know, the grid did fall over and trip over a lot of the time because the wiring wasn't right. Um, it wasn't safe. You know, JP Morgan was an early advocate of the power system. He had it wired to his office. It burnt his office down twice. Um, you know, so again, not great. And the thermodynamic efficiency of the first dynamos in the power system. So it was run by coal. The, the thermodynamic efficiency they estimate was 2%. So for every 100 units of coal energy that you had, you got two useful units. But that was only after you'd got the coal to the power plant. So by the time you'd mined it, got it to the power plant and put it in the power plant, your net energy balance was negative. And actually, it was funny, I was chatting to someone who worked in the early offshore wind industry, and they were laughing to me saying that in the early offshore wind days, people also were saying, this isn't very efficient. Why on earth are we building wind turbines? This doesn't make any sense. They only run 20, 30% of the time. That's not a very good use of resources. So, you know, we have these arguments, they come in cycles and waves, and people make the same points each time. And history has consistently shown that that's not really, you know, that they're red herrings. The bit that really matters that history has shown us is where you can demonstrate a tangible use case and application to customers, then people will adapt and take them on. Uh, and, you know, I think a great example in the hydrogen industry today that is is unquestionable is fuel cell forklifts in warehousing. You know, the payback period now is 18 months for plug power systems in Amazon and, and Walmart depots. You know, and it's now I think over a third of Walmart and over a third of Amazon depots use them. You know, these are not stupid companies, and some of them have actually replaced battery electric for fuel cell electric. Um, and most often they're replacing diesel and LPG, which is great. But the fact is they are winning on a value proposition based case, which is that they are simply a better product than what was there before. 
that is you know that is what we should always be striving to talk about you know how do we build better energy products that deliver better energy services to customers and if we can do that back to your point around people people at the moment are being sold the story that the energy transition is simply one of paying more because they're only looking at the commodity cost if you only focus on everything being an exact like for like then the only thing you have to talk about is commodity cost but you know the example i give is the is the phone industry you know if i just talked about the commodity cost between a nokia 3310 and an iphone 10 you'd go well this is ridiculous why on earth would i pay 10 pounds more for something that can make a phone call and send a text when i can pay a tenth less and have longer battery you know but no one would do that that's just stupid you'd go well look at all the different things i can do with this iphone the iphone fundamentally changes the way that i operate and actually the iphone is not really a phone it's actually a mini computer and a mini computer is value is much greater than a 3210. We know this, we, but we somehow forget to carry this very basic intuitive point into the energy industry and go, if I can take my house off grid using a battery electric car, surely that is a huge value proposition compared to a petrol car. So why am I comparing a petrol car to a battery car? It's not the same thing. It's not the same value. Sure, the commodity cost I can compare, but the value is very different. That is the mindset shift we have got to get into if we're going to not only enable the energy transition, but sell it and bring people on the journey. Because back to my point, we have 28 years to do this. If we don't talk about people, we don't explain value, and we don't focus on solutions that make things better for people, even if they have a higher commodity cost, but they have a better value proposition, we're going to get nowhere. And thinking about people and, and bringing people on this journey, actually, something that ties back to my business very much is around increasing the number of people working in this space. It's a, it's an exponentially growing sector. Therefore, we can't rely on the expertise within it now. We need to bring people from other industries or other parts of the energy sector into these organizations that are driving the energy transition. Um, and you kind of touched on that there with your um side operation of working in that wider ecosystem and something that always stands out to me is a the enthusiasm but also be the companies supporting each other so actually speaking highly of your competitors and welcoming that kind of interaction with organizations who might be purely offshore wind or purely solar or you know the ev companies it sounds, just listening to you speak, you clearly have these relationships in all of those parts, but it seems like that's something that you hold kind of as a as a very high value yourself personally, but also within Proteum. So for those people who are outside looking in at the moment, kind of what would be your message to them on not just getting behind the energy transition as a customer or a consumer, but also joining this sector? Well, thank you for teeing me up. Um, what I would say is that this sector needs talent, and I mean talent in every single sense. You know, and I will speak to Proteum. Um, we are constantly hiring. We we really need talented project managers. We need passionate engineers. We need people who are commercially minded, who know how to go out and negotiate contracts. We need people who understand land and how to go through negotiation. And so does the sector. 
there is an incredible shortage of talent across this space. And regardless of whether you're an EV charging company, a heat pump company, a wind company, a green hydrogen company, you know, uh, there is a little bit of a national call to arms at this point. Um, you know, and Siemens Energy launched a paper called a national endeavor in September in Parliament, where they were saying that this will require a wartime level mobilization to hit the 2035 net zero power target that the government had set, not even 2050 net zero. But, you know, Steve Scrimshaw, their CEO was you know, for the UK was very public, we will require a national level effort across every single part of the value chain, working from companies that are building projects to engineering companies that are designing and then constructing the projects to the supply chain that's building out the equipment, you know, to the regulators, to safety, to planning, to legal, to banking. There is a huge opportunity here. And a gentleman called Jigger Shah, who's a famous US investor, one of the founders of a company called Generate Capital, now works with the US DOE, famously wrote a book saying the energy transition is the largest economic opportunity in economic history for people. You know, more investment is going to have to be poured into the sector than we have ever seen in any sector in history in a time frame that is unparalleled if we are serious about net zero. And for young people and for people looking to retrain who've had previous professions, you know, there is almost a limitless amount of opportunity here. And companies like mine want to hear from you and see how we can take your skills and experience and help you help us make this journey happen. Because as I tell my team, this is the, you know, this is the professional and personal fight of our lives and failure is not an option. And I think you put it very well there. It's that retraining piece. I think um, actually inspiring young people who are embarking on their kind of initial journey seems less of a challenge because actually there is a generational mind shift that's already happened there. But people retraining actually have such valuable skills and experience because I'm a huge believer in the power of diverse teams and diverse in, diversity in all its forms. But just that experience of having 10 people sat around a table who have worked in 10 different sectors um, and the suggestions and ideas and creativity and actually constructive conflict that comes out of it is is immense. Well, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I mean, you know, just because we hire based on, on you know, talent, that's, I mean, that is why we hire, right? I mean, we, we, we haven't had any conscious policies on it, but we've ended up with a company of 46 people spread all across the UK, representing 15 different nationalities. You know, I think nearly 20 different languages that people have the ability to speak across the business. You know, there are things as well that we're, we're trying to work more on. So we want to be 50% women. We are about 41% women across the business, which is not bad by energy and engineering standards. And I was actually pretty shocked that the combustion industry had told me at one point that the ratio of women in the UK combustion sector was 0.6%, um, which is quite a staggering number. And I think the engineering baseline is 18% women across the UK. You know, but it's also bringing in, as you say, as many different voices um, from you know different backgrounds, different ages, different experiences, different geographies to come together. You know, We have an office in Cardiff, an office in Edinburgh, an office in London. And it creates all sorts of interesting challenges in travel, but it does mean that we get to bring in talent from across the UK. And I think that's what we are going to have to do in this energy transition. We cannot be complacent about that. Talent is out there. And you know, some of the people's CVs we've looked at, exactly to your point, Jenny, don't look like energy people. 
you read them and there's sometimes energy doesn't even appear once in their CV. But what you do see is a load of skills and experiences that actually translate brilliantly across into the space. And I think we are fortunate as an SME that we can be quite flexible in the way that we've worded our approach to people. You know, we can just sort of, you know, we don't have automatic screens. Um, I, I think it is harder for some of the larger companies in the space. And I think that's something I would want to urge them to do more and to do better on, which is, you know, I know you need to filter, I know you need to screen, but actually these keyword filters that you see, I think is closing out a lot of talent for these roles. And I think that's a shame. I agree. And actually it's a sector where possibly the most important thing you can have is a passion for the the end goal. Um, and if you've got that, then that will drive you to fill those skill gaps or to learn quicker or to be able to have an impact, even if your background doesn't match the exact thing that you're doing. No, I mean, I, you're preaching to the converted, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess that leaves us with one last point is the kind of looking forward. So you've talked about the kind of growth of Proteum. Um, but if you were to look, and I'm not going to ask you to look 27 years in the future, because I think for a man that's already had 10 careers, that would be a, a struggle. But if you look at, you know, two, three, four years down the line, what what's in store for Proteum and kind of where do you see yourself adding the most value to this um, this monumental challenge that we're facing? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and thank you for um, giving me the chance to to address it. So, you know, our in our sort of intention is that you know two years from now we are effectively start of twenty twenty five. So, you know, our intention is to have several um, still single digits, but several large integrated green hydrogen projects in the UK going um, into the final stages of construction, um, and ideally some of them really at that stage more going through testing and just going through kind of final approvals before they become operational. What we have said is our corporate goal is we want to knock out a million tons of CO2 a year displaced by 2030. And I think the way that we do that is by demonstrating in this first wave of projects that we're hoping to get through final feed and financial um, decisions in the next 12 months is to kind of prove that model prove that what we're doing works, prove that it makes sense, prove the customers are happy, show the trajectory for cost declines and the value that we've spoken about several times on this show, and then really scale up at pace. Because I think the challenge right now is, you know, a lot of uh, businesses have tried really hard to run as fast as they can and have these global take over the world ambitions. Um, and I don't think it's anything to do with their lack of passion. I think i hugely supportive of many of their passions but they spread themselves too thin and too thin too early and i'm very mindful that you know we have a job we have a job on decarbonization but we also have a job for our team the people who've chosen to work with us we have a job for our customers our suppliers and our investors so you know next two years is get these first projects done prove they work prove the model and show everybody that this crazy idea or seemingly crazy idea, I should say, that we've been speaking about for, you know, the better part of the last three, nearly four years now, will be six years by then, is real. And then really start to do this at scale. And I think part of what we see is that there is enormous level of demand out there and people just are wary of being the first mover. And, you know, my message, I guess, to people listening to this podcast is if you can think you should, you can help, we want to hear from you. If you're a customer trying to figure out how to do this on your own journey, 
come and chat to us. If you're someone who's looking to work in the space or retrain, come chat to us. If you're an investor who's trying to support these types of businesses, come and chat. And if you're a regulator or a policymaker who doesn't have a clue what's going on, but is really keen and passionate about net zero and you want to see what we can do, come and talk because we can't do this on our own. And that's probably the most powerful thing that actually, Jenny, we really are trying to do is we're trying to show others that this works. We are trying to blaze a path, um, you know, and be as bold and aggressive as we can be to show that this works so that others can follow, so that other businesses, other entrepreneurs, other investors can go, this model works. Um, and Proteam alone can't move the dial globally. But if we can inspire 10, 50, 100, you know, in wild dreams, obviously, you know, maybe even more to copy us and be, you know, as successful and hopefully some cases more successful, we all have made a difference in some way. And I think that's what we really want to do is to make a material difference to fighting this issue, which, as I said before, is going to be the biggest professional and personal challenge of our lives. Well, I mean, you've certainly got the passion um, and the determination, and it sounds like you're growing the right team. So, um, yeah, I think you're you're on the right path, um, and we're going to see very big things from Proteum in years to come. Here's hoping, um, and thank you very much for your time on the show. It's lovely to be. Uh, it's lovely to have the chance to to talk a little bit about us, and um, yeah, hope your listeners enjoy it as well. Me too. And I hope I was kind enough with you on the other side of the desk. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were very kind. I'm not sure I'm so kind. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us, Chris. Um, and to our listeners, yeah, listen to, uh, to what Chris said there. If you think you can help, get in touch with him. He's hopefully going to be a very busy man getting, in, getting all of this contact. Um, and stay tuned and follow his journey and certainly listen to his podcast because he is, um, he's the original. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for listening to Conversations in Clean Tech, brought to you by Brightsmith. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others to find the show. For more information on how Brightsmith can help you to build a sustainable future through identifying, attracting, and retaining diverse talent, please head over to brightsmithgroup.com. Join us next time for more conversations in clean tech.